0: Welcome to The New School at Commonweal, a collaborative learning project exploring nature, culture, and consciousness. Join us now for a conversation with Professor Robert McDermott and Michael Lerner. This is part two of a two-part conversation with Professor McDermott titled Philosophy, Spirituality, and Community, A Professor's Journey.
1: Robert McDermott, welcome back to our New School conversation. Thank you, Michael. During our lunch break... um, one of the many things we discussed was um, that we hadn't gotten to life, death, and karma in some significant way. So maybe that's a starting point for the afternoon. Okay. What is your sense
2: of <laughs> how oh life, God. death, yeah, and karma yeah, work? You're the world's authority, and you're asking me about <laughs> I mean, this. Is not fair. <laughs> uh, uh, I don't really know very much about. Dying or death. Karma, I think, I do think about. Well, I'll confess tell to us that. what you
1: think about karma.
2: Okay. Uh, I know for certain that I don't know very much about it. Uh, not because I'm not trying. It, it, I've decided that it's actually very difficult. Because it's another one of those strands of... Uh, ways to try to know and to experience and to be related to spirit or to the divine. It's not there for us to see. It's really hard. So I, you know, as you know, since you do your homework so faithfully, I wrote this essay called A Karmic Autobiography. And there's two or three places where I say, this must be karmic. Um, and I sort of think, I had some right to say that, but um, I'm, it's it's very un, it's a very mysterious situation, and yet, like spirit itself, or the divine, or whatever it is that we don't know very well, um, for me that's not a reason not to try to know. Um, it is, I think, the the concept is important because it, as often happens, the concept can help us to see what we would otherwise miss. We can overuse it, and we can use it too literally, we can use it too confidently, all kinds of bad things. But if we have the concept, at least as a start, we might be able to see something important, like synchronicity. If you have the concept, then you have this amazing coincidence that's it's kind of thing you, you can't decide whether you want to tell anybody because it's so amazing. Um, but if you have that concept synchronicity, you you know that's what it is, and you're grateful for it. It's it's a it's an opening. It's an opening. Um, so karma for me is like that. I, we just were having this brief. Do you know B J? And you said, Yeah, of course I know B J Miller. And I say, Well. B.J. and I have pals. B.J.
1: being the head of Zen Hospice who right. lost both legs and one arm in right. an accident as a young man and right. does this extraordinary work with hospice.
2: Easy work, yeah. r- rides his bike to work. To, uh, anyway, he's joyful and inspiring and beautiful. Um, but when I think of B.J., just right away I think karma. This poor guy has no choice but to do this work, mm-hmm. you know, it's just mm-hmm. everything is pushing him, uh, including some people like the two of us who admire him, but a lot of other people too. And some people, I don't get that thought. You know, they're sort of going along, and that's okay, uh, helping people and themselves. But with Bj, you just get this feeling that, I mean, he was just was like thrown into this uh, this work with with the dying. Um, and uh, hard, hard biographies. Um, so I I don't have anything, as I was saying earlier, so dramatic that I can, you know. But in the, in the memoir that I wrote that you read, Michael, I do, I'm sitting in Lawrence Rockefeller's office, in the same office where I delivered shirts in high school, uh, with Elizabeth McCormick, who hired me to teach philosophy when I was 25. Uh, and they're talking about whether whether Lauren should give me $5 million or $6 million, and I'm saying to myself, I'm not doing this. Mm. I don't know who's doing this, but I'm not doing this. Mm. And that, for me, is, feels like a kind of a karmic moment. Mm. I did could not have brought that about, mm. but I didn't. Mm. And yet it happened. And it had something significant, kind of in an objective way, as you must have lots of those moments in, in commonwealth, mm-hmm. that something comes about that is more than you could have imagined, including some bad things.
3: Mm -hmm.
2: Bad, bad, that are really hard, that somehow somehow, without fooling ourselves have some some positive relationship to the rest of our lives. Mm -hmm. So this is pretty vague and complicated and probably incoherent, Mm -hmm. but it's as far as I can get with karma, Uh, except I want to repeat what I said Before, Namely, I am not at all inclined to give up. Mm -hmm. (laughs) I think it is one of the ways in to depth, to spirit, to divinity, to providence, to angelic influence, something. I don't think about God. (laughs) I think about something pretty local, (laughs) like, you know, my higher self or an angel or Mm -hmm. something like that. I don't think God has time for me, really. Uh, But um, karma is a possible um, sort of indicator,
3: Mm
2: -hmm. kind of hints Mm -hmm. of what you're supposed to be doing. Should you be in this marriage, should you not? Is this really your illness or is it caused by people polluting the the water? Um, Which is sort of karma, sort of maybe not what you were intended. And right there, I'm already confused. That's as far as I can get.
1: You mentioned angels, um, yeah. and you said earlier that you were sure they were real, along with Buddha, Krishna, Christ, Moses, so on. How do you understand the nature of angels?
2: Well, first of all, I want to I want to uh, withdraw from sure. <laughs> I don't know if I said sure, okay. but if I did, okay. I shouldn't say sure about any of this. Okay. I it's it's strong enough that I. Uh, I carry it around.
1: Okay. So how do you carry angels around?
2: I think that there are times when there is, like a synchronicity, an intervention from another realm. Mm -hmm. And as much as I love Fra Angelico, I'm not sure that they looked like what he thought, Mm -hmm. though I do think he had beautiful spiritual vision. Mm or Blake, or some others. Um, so I, uh, I guess influenced by Steiner, but also the Jewish tradition and the Buddhist tradition. Uh, there are infinite number of realms and levels, and, mm-hmm. uh, and, uh, and some of them are um, probably um, concerned with one culture and not another. <laughs> Mm-hmm. Or one group of people, and not another, or one age, mm-hmm. and not another. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, I think that uh, I, I, I accept the whole nine-level hierarchy, mm-hmm. right? That there are there are beings who who brought into uh, the evolutionary process warmth, and they brought in shape, and they brought in or space, and they brought in personality, mm-hmm. and and light, and those all wove and and um, poured themselves forth to bring about. I really, mean, you know, my colleague, friend Brian Swim talks about the Big Bang. I think the Big Bang actually took a long time, and or or subsequent to it uh, was a long time, and those. Those hierarchies were involved with all that. And angels are the ones that are closest to human humans, beings.
1: Mm-hmm. Meaning, of course, messenger. and Messenger, and, exactly. And in the Hebrew Bible, uh, they typically show up in people's dreams. Right. Uh, and, um, and who among us hasn't had dreams... Where we've had a sense of a powerful message. Yes.
2: One so, kind of uh, dream,
1: yeah. Exactly. So it, um, big dreams. Yeah yeah, yeah, yeah. So, um, do you know Rupert Sheldrake's work? I do. Yeah. What do you think of Sheldrake's work? I
2: think started? Sheldrake is wonderful because he has a real spiritual orientation mm-hmm. and he's doing science. Yes, and taking on scientific orthodoxy, right? Pretty forcefully and brilliantly, articulately, courageously. I think he's he's a real right. he's he's a champ.
1: And the reason I mention him severalfold: first of all, he's a Neoplatonic. I yes, mean, he is. The, yeah. the theory of morphic resonance, that, right? You know that a cat connects to other cats because there is, in a sense, the Platonic idea of a cat, which is the The resonance created by catness among cats, you know, in some way or other is a way of saying it. Um, Are you sure about the idea part? Well, no, I. Because I think of
2: it as an etheric realm. Uh,
1: Yeah, idea is the wrong word. Thank you for that. That's better. Uh, But the theory of morphic resonance. Yes. And then he goes about trying to figure out how to demonstrate that in different ways. And he's got this wonderful book called Dogs Who Know When Their Masters Are Coming Home. Yep. He's done a whole series of experiments, absolutely demonstrating. Seems to me that when somebody turns around 30 miles away and begins to head home, the dog fricks right. up his ears and exactly. Know, uh, and also his book on the sense of being stared at, you know, is another. I haven't example. read that. Yeah, it's again that. That people can pick these things up. He wrote about angels. He did a he did. yeah. Um, so, yep. and in that sense, I mean, there's there's the idea of an angel as a messenger, but there's the idea that an angel quality of an angel is that it's sort of one pure force, right? Is that a, is that how you understand angels, or do you understand them as more complex?
2: Yeah, more complex. Okay. Uh, um. The, the angels, uh, influenced by Steiner, I think the angels really are serving humanity, okay. really helping people in matter okay. develop a spiritual capacity. And their job is harder and harder <laughs> in the should. modern West.
1: And do we each have our own guardian angels, so to speak?
2: Steiner thinks so. Mm-hmm. And I don't have... A very active relationship, but I do sometimes think, and and with some frequency, uh, that when I'm about to do something really catastrophic, and I don't, Mm -hmm. or uh, avoid an accident, or uh, you know, do something about to do really something really terrible, uh, and I'm stopped sometimes pretty forcefully, or I'm awakened. Something when I really need to be, uh because to somebody who actually needs me to be someplace, um, I do sometimes say, "Thank you, angel." That I did not do that on my own; mm-hmm. that was an intervention.
1: Now, how do you understand the relationship between a guardian angel and Socrates's diamond, for example?
2: Yeah. Well, the J- tra- Jewish tradition, as you know, had angels, and the Greek tradition didn't quite have angels, right. but they did have um, alive ideas, mm-hmm. um, which I think are not so dissimilar. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so the the daimon, uh, which in our culture is just conscience, mm-hmm. all right, but I think for him was a real uh, active capacity, an active, I don't know, being exactly. Um, but uh, he... You know, we think of Socrates as the beginning of, of philosophy, which is true and important. But it's also true that he got his his career as a philosopher from the Delphic Oracle. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so we're, we 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 have a mix at that at that point. Not with Aristotle, but with Socrates. Plato's right in the middle. Um, so I think the diamond for Socrates is. Uh, Transcends Socrates um, um, ordinary person. Mm -hmm. It's it's more than his normal self. It's 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 an extra capacity. Mm. Soul, something like
1: that. Two two things struck me about Socrates' Diamond. One was um, one was that the Diamond, as I remember. The daimon doesn't tell Socrates what to do. It right. tells Socrates what not to do. Exactly. And that strikes me as extremely interesting. Because it,
2: absolutely. Because
1: what it essentially says is we have as human beings a huge realm of freedom. And what our daimon, or you use the modern word conscience, does is to tell us what not to do. But I wonder, following James Hillman whether daimon isn't a lot more than conscience, whether it isn't that uh, um, guidance toward our karmic destiny. Oh, yeah which is a lot more than conscience. Yeah, I, didn't,
2: I wasn't identifying with the word conscience. Okay. I was saying it, it's, the, it's the modern okay. version, but everything modern is fallen from everything right. traditional.
1: Right, and the traditional much less. is that this is what shapes our destiny for right. better or for worse. Yes. Yeah.
2: But I don't know, and it sounds like you don't know, why he was emphatic that it only tells them what not to do.
1: I think it's because um, it is an expression of the reality of human freedom, that there are many, many things we can do, and then there are certain things that it's really better that we not do. Okay, that you
2: sounds know. good. That you know, sounds that's,
1: helpful. That's, that's yeah.
2: yeah. But no, you and I are of the same opinion, right. I'm not certain we've found the right words yet, right. about the diamond—that that it is right. a transcendent right. reality and capacity.
1: And the other thing I love about the Socrates story and the, and the, um, Uh, you know, what he was told by the Delphic Oracle, and this is my working definition of wisdom, I'd love to reconcile it with yours, is um, that Socrates is wise because he knew that he did not know. Right? And that to me is different, I'm not saying either is better or worse, than yours, which is, uh, uh, you know... I forget exactly the words you use, but it, it is the combination of, of a wisdom function and action in the world, you know? Oh, yeah. um, um, you know. Actually I had a dream last night, I've been wondering about this, I had a dream last night, I was in some kind of mental hospital and I was supposed to see a patient but I was in a state of undress and, uh, you know, I wasn't ready for a patient to walk in. So first of all, this policeman walks into the room and sort of looks around while I'm struggling to get clothes on. And then President Eisenhower walks in and and is there. sort of... And then I finally get a suit on, right? And um, I go out into the hall to say I'm ready to see this patient. And this other... Therapist in the hall basically says, "Wait a minute! I'm supposed to see this patient. You're sort of overstepping your turf, you know." And I get fierce with him, and I say, "Look, I don't need to see anybody, but basically, don't mess with me." You know, I'm a little more direct than that. Um, (laughs) But then, so, so, and he's quite taken aback by my directness. And then I say to him. I say to him, look, I say to him, I don't matter here. I'm not going to be here for a long time. I'm just a little piece of floatsome, just a piece of debris floating on the water. I said, you should be concerned with the people who are going to run this place. All right? Now, what I like about that dream is that it more or less reflects how I look at the world, which is, I don't matter here very much, you know. I am just a piece of debris floating here. I'm not going to be here very long, you know, in the hopefully in the, you know, 50-year perspective or whatever. But and, you know, you should really be concerned with the people who run this place. And and there to me, I guess my sense of unknowing what wisdom is may be more radical than yours. That you have a a virtue ethic and a sense that wisdom exists and, um, and it is that combination of deep insight and uh, virtuous action in the world. And I think that's true, but the wisdom that I really trust is a absolutely radical unknowing. So with all this morning,
2: everything you said I agreed, mm-hmm. <laughs> and everything I said you agreed, yeah. now we're different. Good, um,
1: that, that's what we were trying to get to.
2: Yeah, <laughs> going back to Socrates, yeah, yeah. Uh, you, you accurately reported what he said. Right. But I believe that in addition to what he said, mm-hmm. he particularly, in Plato's version of him, mm-hmm. which is all we have in words, mm-hmm has two parts. One, I'm the wisest of men because I don't know.
3: Mm -hmm. Uh,
2: And I am the wisest of men because I alone know the difference between knowledge and not knowing. But in order to know the difference between knowing and not knowing, you have to know a lot. And you especially have to know what Plato then calls the forms or the ideas. Mm -hmm. And you have to know the difference between the ideas that stand still and the ideas that are fleeting, or the reality that's real and the reality that's illusion. And I read a lot of that into Socrates' statement. It's, It's not so hard to say I don't know, but it's very, very wise to say my not knowing is a knowing of ordinary knowledge, which is not really knowledge, compared to real knowledge, which is the knowledge of the forms.
1: That's beautiful. That's very helpful. So, taking that platonic uh, understanding of Socrates, I was really struck by how important you said it was this morning that you believed in history, that you believed in the evolutionary nature of reality, and that this is con- what connects us to. In other words, you contrasted this to the traditionalist period, the view of Fritz Schoen and René Guénon, that you know that the truths are eternal and sort of immutable. Uh, and you said, no. If I understood you correctly, the t- the truths may be in some sense eternal and immutable, but there is also a movement of history. And that what the time demands, as Aurobindo says, the, the, in other words, the movement of the divine back into matter and into history is a large part of what we have to attend to. Now, do we see that in uh, Socrates, in Plato's Socrates? You wouldn't even argue that the republic is an expression of that. don't. Okay. So
2: we get it from the Jews.
1: We get it from the Jews. Thank you. Okay. <laughs> okay.
2: They gave us morality and history.
1: Right. And when you, in your essay... They're
2: still giving us morality and history. Yeah, I mean, you know, it's not as yeah. though they're past.
1: And, and in your essay on wisdom, you say somebody else in this volume is dealing with the Jews, so I'm not going to talk about them right.
2: here. I was told not to. <laughs> talk about. Right. But I would love to have.
1: Yeah. So we get from the Jews, we get morality and history, that sense of of the movement of evolution. Right.
2: Yeah, the, yeah. I mean, I'm, I'm Buberian, right? I really am influenced by yeah. Martin Buber. Right. And the divine and the human are in a mysterious, brilliant, important mm-hmm. dialogue. Mm-hmm.
1: Now, I mentioned Ibn Arabi and how important he'd been to me in the whole Sufi tradition. And I haven't seen a lot of the Sufis in your work. Is that a correct statement? That's true. So um, I'm curious... Because the way I read the history of Western thought, there is a tremendous influence of the Islamic tradition, and specifically Sufis, although Sufis may well go back before Islam. That's a whole argument. Right. But I'm curious how you hold the Sufi tradition. In fact, I'm trying to remember who it was who talks about how each dispensation is an advance on the previous one so you have judaism with its contribution then you have christianity with its contribution but islam came after and for me in many respects islam brings a further refinement and evolution and the area where it seems to me they bring more is that you know the jews were very centered on what it meant to be jewish the christians were very centered on believing in christ but Muhammad and Islam said there are prophets in every tradition. Now of course they privilege Muhammad, that's to be expected but the Sufis took that even further Ibn Arabi took that even further and so there's this profound acceptance of something that seems very similar to what we've been describing which is that the truth comes into every tradition in different form so why is it that we see so little of the Sufi wisdom In your work,
2: not for a good reason. Okay. Uh, um, I think I could and should, and maybe will Mm -hmm. (laughs) uh, do more. Mm I get what. I first of all, I agree with your account that the Sufis are the most have the most universal uh, spirituality
1: of the Western. Yes. The Hindus have it in the East, right?
2: Leave that for a minute. Okay. Because that's very complicated. Okay. But I think the Sufis, it's quite unambiguous right. uh, and very positive and wonderful. Right. Right. Um, so there I'm agreeing with you and, yeah. and applauding, saying yes. Um, I, uh, uh, <coughs> If I were to spend a lot of time reading the Sufis, they would strengthen my commitment to universalism. Mm -hmm. Uh, I guess I feel that I have that. Mm
3: -hmm.
2: But I can't, but in a way, that might be facile, because um, Aurobindo really is dealing primarily with India and a little bit the West. Uh, Stein is dealing with the West, not at all, I shouldn't say not at all, because he did the Bhagavad Gita and Buddha, he really is focused on the West. Um, uh, Teod, another one of my super pals, is um, uh, really is uh, Catholic with a strong knowledge and interest in Asian spirituality. But he's still really Christ Catholic.
1: Standard. Yeah, to de Chardin.
2: Yeah, right. sorry, Teod de Chardin. Um, the Dalai Lama, I think, is. Very close to the Sufi tradition mm-hmm. in that he has become the nearest we have to a completely universal, a, a universal teacher, yeah. and I'm, I'm very close to him intellectually and emotionally. Mm-hmm. Whatever word, whatever whatever positive word we mm-hmm. would use, it's it's applicable. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, I I can still get almost to tears thinking about meeting the Dalai Lama. Mm-hmm. Uh, not too many people have done that to me. Mm-hmm. Um, so. Uh, it's a great question, uh, Michael, and more than a question, it's really a suggestion. Um, I don't I, mean
1: it as a suggestion. Yeah,
2: but it comes to me as, yeah, Michael, you're making good sense. Mm-hmm. My good friend, uh, Christopher Bamford, who's the editor of Steiner Books and, mm-hmm. you know, my very close friend for 35 years, he's become more and more Sufi. Uh, and other friends I have.
1: Uh, Bamford wrote a brilliant book. What a, Who did? Bamford. On... Didn't Christopher Bamford write a brilliant... He's written many books. Uh,
2: The one that you might be thinking of is An Endless
1: Trace. Yes.
2: uh, Esoteric, uh, really, Wisdom in the West. Yes,
1: beautiful book. Great
2: writer. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Also, yeah, he has many books. He has one on uh, Scotus Origina. uh, 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 He has one on Celtic Christianity, Mm -hmm. one on... uh, uh, Blavatsky, Steiner, oh, and amazing. one on Sophia, uh, uh, yeah. uh, uh, Isis, Mary Sophia,
3: mm-hmm.
2: uh, a lot of writing, a great writer. Mm-hmm. Uh, um, he's a romantic
3: yes. uh,
2: and a universalist. Right. Um, and he's going, he and um, Pierre, um, the grandson of Pierre Veliat, yeah, mm-hmm. in uh, upstate New York, mm-hmm. Um, now becoming more and more in the Lindisfarne Association. Oh, really? Um, so all that is happening, and it's sort of on mm-hmm. my periphery. Mm-hmm. Um, and I might I might do more mm-hmm. like that. I'm certainly open to it.
3: Uh-huh.
2: I haven't, you know, it must be true of you, it's certainly true of me. These things happen to me in in relationships, conversations. And,
1: well, you know, for me what I love about the new school and what I love about this is that this is where I find freedom in my work. You know, that this is, in other words, I am just drawn to certain people and certain bodies of work that I end up immersing myself in for right. months or years. Yeah. And it's the place that I won't allow strategic considerations to intervene. You know, I, in other words, I don't, I don't have to follow some utilitarian thing.
0: You're listening to a conversation with Professor Robert McDermott and Michael Lerner.
1: This is the place that matters to me to be free, you know, so, so um, it just, you know, what draws me. And, and speaking of which, one of Steiner's key ideas, as I understand, is that the dead and guidance from the divine can come to us through thought, right? That was, is that quite original in Steiner? I mean, it's a, a, a strong theme, right? Very strong. Yeah.
2: Very, very strong. Um, we've touched on it a little bit several yeah. times, but I haven't been explicit yeah. or careful. Mm-hmm. Um, so you remember when a couple of times we were talking about uh, ideas, and I was saying, but they're, they're alive. Mm-hmm. So. Steiner and Teilhard de Chardin both regard, uh, both think of human beings as being, as living in a thinking realm. Mm-hmm. Uh, log- they both call it logos. Mm-hmm. The, the, the logos is the, is the thought realm, the idea realm. Very platonic, mm-hmm. uh, but also highly individualized. Mm-hmm. So that we now have access to ideas and ideals that live in a, in a realm, right? so like an angelic realm, uh, and so the the dead. Uh, we were we were at this earlier this morning, and I'm we trying to get the context. We were talking about um, the dead, maybe the dead or something else, uh, and I was saying that uh, the in the spirit realm there aren't bodies. There are uh, souls or or spirits and ideas and ideals that are real and active, and they are seeking to incarnate in human beings, and they um, they are crucial for our uh, development mm-hmm. if we pay attention. Mm-hmm. So that's why his first book is Philosophy of Freedom, which is trying to He's arguing against Kant, saying, no, you can't have a universal person as a criterion. You can only have an individual person. So this is virtue ethics now. Uh, Individual person as a criterion, and what is right for that person has to do with that person's uh, karmic trajectory, his entire life, his or her, entire life, not some idea of humanity.
1: Don't you have a footnote somewhere in your work about the number of people who read Kant and it made a tremendous difference in their lives? I I thought it was you, or maybe it wasn't, but it was... uh, It's not like me, right? Okay, well, it was fascinating because it was Steiner, read Kant, right? Oh, oh! (laughs) <laughs> and yeah. Why did I doubt your memory? And exactly. Young read Kant. Yeah. And didn't Simone Veil? No, it was oh. it was Hannah
2: Arendt. Hannah Arendt. Good going. Right. Yeah. It, and the point wasn't just that they read Kant. Right. That they read Kant at fourteen.
1: Right. That's what I.
2: Which for me is has a whole sort
1: of shout of a karma. I mean, Can you imagine a culture <laughs> where people read Kant at fourteen? You know, I mean, that's what to me. You know, forgive me, but American civilization. You know, my father wrote a book called America's. A civilization. Sure did. <laughs> but American civilization is so young, and when I think of the cultural context which Jung and Steiner and others lived in, it had it was so profound. I mean, the the you know, the romantic tradition and, and uh, the German idealism and, uh, and all, and sort of living in relationship to all this stuff. And that's what I was saying about we see these blooms as if they were sort of, you know, unique, but in fact they were part of this unbelievably embodied, lived uh, life of the mind and of the spirit. And, and the world wars destroyed that. The world wars destroyed that and they destroyed faith in the power of that. And then you get not only materialism, but you get existentialism as, you know, sort of meaninglessness, As a, although they're different. And I w- wanted to ask you, since I'm rambling on here, um, about existentialism. I haven't read you speaking much about it, and I'm curious how you hold the existential tradition.
2: Unlike Sufism, which is, I think, a good idea for me to pursue, (laughs) (laughs) the existentialists, I've already done. Uh Uh, And I'm done. Yeah, and you're done. Mm -hmm. Um, uh, I I think it's exciting when you're young. Mm -hmm. Uh, But first of all, I should distinguish the the sartrean existentialists, for whom I no longer have patience, Uh, and uh, the religious existentialists, who I think mostly shouldn't be called existentialists. Mm-hmm. Uh, we should get a new name, uh, maybe personalist, uh, such as uh, Buber, Tillich, Mertin, mm-hmm. Bajayev, whom I really like. Mm-hmm. Uh, all of them, I think, are very, very special. They have an existential dimension because you hardly could not, writing between the two wars. Uh, but uh, Sartre is... We can't build a civilization on Sartre. Mm-hmm. We can't get ethics. We can't get responsibility. Mm-hmm. We get a radical disengaged freedom that I think is uh, elite and luxurious and not character building.
1: Mm-hmm. So, in that theme of what existentialism did, uh, um, when I read James Hillman, who I've been reading now for. Almost three years in depth, um, and is it three or thirty. Three, three. Okay, and and there's a lot that I admire in Hillman, but the problem I have with Hillman is that I think he was profoundly influenced by that existentialist tradition, <laughs> and there's no. How can I say there's no. I mean, it's a, it's a philosophical and metaphysical choice, but his choice is, in some sense, uh, I don't want to say meaninglessness, but there's no coherent whole. There's no there's no coherent whole, at least for me. And I, that, metaphysically and personally, I need that sense of. Which your work so strongly points to. You say, in effect, you say, I don't really know how all these strands that have guided me fit together, but I have a confidence that there is a unity in them all. Is that fair to say? Yeah, yeah,
2: I think so. And I
1: think Hillman.
2: Enough to keep me working.
1: uh, Enough to keep you working. I think Hillman lacks that, but I'm curious whether you've read Hillman. I have. And I'm really curious what your take on Hillman is, independently of my point of view.
2: He's not expert. But I have read them, and because my dearest friend mm-hmm. is Rick Tarnas. Right. <laughs> he's a super authority on Hillman. I didn't know. Oh, close. I didn't know that. Rick gave the, ob- uh, not obituary, the... Um, the eulogy. Uh, a eulogy.
1: I didn't know that. Yeah, a
2: beautiful eulogy. If you uh-huh. can remember to ask me, I'll send it to uh-huh. you. Uh, so he's, I mean, Rick is a big...
1: His book, Cosmos and Psyche.
2: This is good. <laughs> Yeah. We could talk
1: about that. Well, I'd like to in a minute. Yeah. yeah.
2: yeah. Uh, so Rick comes from Jung, mm-hmm. and he's got Graf on one side of his head and Hillman on the other. I see. And I think it goes Jung, Graf, Hillman, Tarnas. How fascinating. Huh? Oh, yeah. That is like a diamond. Yeah, yeah. Jung, then Jung goes to Graf, Jung goes to Hillman, and then they both go to Tarnas. That's fascinating. It's big. It's actually big. Uh, and I think it will get bigger. Okay. Um, anyway. Um,
1: uh, so, so that gives me a different perspective on Hillman because uh, because Tarnas has a unitary vision. Absolutely. Yeah, and so if... Maybe I'm just missing the unitary Not so vision. so sure. I, uh, because
2: I didn't say that uh-huh. Hillman is Tarnas or Tarnas is Hillman. No, no I hear you. Rick, he has other parts. Right. I mean, you know, the, the middle part of... Right. A Pastor in the Western right, Mind right. was written in weekly conversations with Father Bruno at the Hermitage. Oh really? You know, so he's got this, this Hegelian Christian dimension that right. Hillman doesn't have at all at all. And and Stan Groff doesn't have. Right. So Rick is rich. It's okay. quite, quite, quite rich. Uh, so getting to Hillman, uh, Hillman uh, is a gifted, but was, but his writings still are. Uh, gifted, brilliant, naughty boy. Yes. And he is blowing the whistle on presumption, on uh, foolishness, on um, stodgy, all kinds of things that need to be sort of exposed. That was his job. Yeah. Uh, And and thank you for it. Yeah. Um, So I don't think we can build a civilization on oh, Hillman, on. but if we have one, as we do, right, might, maybe it's too flattering a word, but we need Hillman to blow it up a little bit. And, and Hillman oh, is a beautiful way of understanding what's going on.
3: Clearly. yeah.
2: So he's a Nietzschean figure.
1: Yes, he is.
2: So that part of existential I think the whole existentialist is necessary. Right. I just don't want to be the child of one. Right. Or, or raise my child as an existentialist. Right. Right. Uh, I'm too devoted to character.
1: Right. Now, that brings us to Tarnas, who brought this along. He wrote that first book, The Passion of the Western Mind. was yes. an incredible book, and I loved it. But this book, Cosmos and Psyche, um, Imit- in- Intimations of a New World Order, this is about astrology as an actual guide Yep. to understanding the world. Yes. And it's extraordinarily convincing. Yes. And I wonder whether you think it's true.
2: <laughs> uh, well, first of all, I've been involved with astrology since the first day I was involved with the Aurobindo people. Okay. They're all astrological. Okay. Uh, and they've been reading Jung for a long, long right. time. And Steiner is... Deeply astrological. Right. So I've never not been involved in it. So I'm not.
1: There's a difference between taking astrology as an exquisite symbolic system that gives one all kinds of insight into situations and this incredible tour de force of an actual description of how astrology describes historical events.
2: I'm not sure of the difference.
1: The difference is that um, one can see archetypes like when you throw the I Ching, for example. Right. My point of view is it may or may not make any difference which reading you get. The very reality of getting a reading takes you into a depth of a place that the those symbolic resonance, and you connect to the symbolic resonance. So I'm not a hundred percent sure. Although I'm a Libra with, you know, Libra rising and a Leo moon, and so on, in the cusp with Scorpio, so on and so forth. I'm not. 100% that was good. Sure. That was very good, Michael. I'm not a hundred percent sure. In fact, I'm not at all sure that my actual birth signs make a difference. What I do know is that thinking of myself in terms of those archetypes gives me a sense of depth. And and I think, oh my god, this is amazingly true. But I'm not sure that if I'd been given another set of archetypes, they wouldn't seem equally true. So, what Cosmos and Psyche does is it, it nails down a whole set of historical events and people and developments and so on in terms of astrological events. So when I ask you whether you think it's true, I'm asking not at the level of variously interpretable, like the Delphic Oracle is a really good example, gave answers that could be read in many, many different ways. I think a lot of archetypes work that way. You know, they take you to depth, and then you figure out whatever you're going to figure out. But it's a different claim that this stuff actually works in terms of predicting or understanding history.
2: Okay, I feel like I have a a huge responsibility here. (laughs) Because I'm not an astrologer. And I don't even speak astrology very well. Uh, But I've been around it. And and I just Mm -hmm. absolutely love Rick Tarnas. And I think he's just brilliant beyond measure. And I haven't had any reason to disagree with anything he's written or said. So let me try to say something that's a little different from yours, but you might find acceptable. Remember, we're talking, doing the mansions before, and we've got
3: mm-hmm.
2: Aurobindo, Steiner, a Swedenborg, a yeah. Plotinus, all leading us. And we get there and we say, Whoa. Mm-hmm. Then we come back and we try to get a context, mm-hmm. um, and because it's really a loop. Now, astrology was a uh, standard. At a time when uh, thinking people, teachers, uh, had access to the inner life of the astrological configurations. And for reasons I think we could actually track, that was lost. Mm -hmm. Not entirely, but but from the mainstream culture. Mm -hmm. Partly lost and partly driven out or in favor of other values, especially during the Enlightenment, although lots of those people had, uh, <laughs> were always doing uh, astrology and, and other uh, things that, according to the paradigm, weren't okay. So so now we have a reclamation in the modern West with individuality, with science, with psychology, with all kinds of things, and a lot of astronomy. and. Um, We're using, and I'll just say, or Rick is, but lots and lots of people are, including lots of my students, uh, our students, uh, are using the study. It's not like reading off a blackboard. It's a little bit like Steiner trying to figure out something about the souls or the the spirits that lived in the last century. Mm -hmm. He's trying to get a look. He's trying to do pigaboo, while they're going off making other combat etc., etc. So it's a very inexact of necessity. But I believe it is revelatory in that the archetypal structure of reality. Of arc Arch, archetypes. Archetype. Arc, A-R-C-H-E, as in origin, structure, foundation. Those structures of reality affect planetary movement and affect human beings and if we want to know what's going on with human beings we can look at the movement of the planets where the influence of the archetypes is visible archetypes is visible Rick, as I understand it, is, I, mean, I haven't checked with him on this sentence, but it's not saying that the planets are affecting us. The planets are revealing the archetypes.
1: I see. That's very helpful.
2: All right. Now, when you look at the start of the First World War or 1968, mm-hmm. there are certain commonalities. Right. There's a degree of inevitability of... Breaking structures. Right. That, and also up against in a way that's going to bring about a new new structures with a lot of chaos in the process. Uh, 68. And so he says: when you see that, you're looking at a combination of Saturn and Pluto. Saturn that sets limits and Pluto that blows up. Mm-hmm. That happens in some people's lives, and I was curious if you'd like to check what with Rick on your, 19, on your 1982, right? right. And just when see what well, life collapsed. Yes, when that what was going on.
1: Yeah.
2: Um, if you gave him your your natal birth, right, mm-hmm. then he could go back and say, Well, of course. Look at you've got Saturn, you've got Pluto, mm-hmm. you've got whatever yeah, else yeah. breakdown here and there, and it's not surprising that something. Mm-hmm. Like this happened, not that this exact thing happened, but it's a it's a um, uh, preparation, or it's a, uh, a framing for a certain kind of event or a certain kind of relationship. Mm-hmm. Does that make sense?
1: That, yeah. Well, and also you you correctly described that as a third alternative to the two that I posited. And it helps me understand Tarnas better. And I did a wonderful new school conversation with, with Tarnas years ago. Oh, you did? Uh, okay. And I have a huge respect for him. Yeah. But th- the reason I brought him up is that this is such an amazingly powerful book that it causes me to ask how to hold it. You know? yeah. It's one thing for me to go get an astrological reading from a friend which seems deeply insightful it's another thing to read a book that documents in such depth a whole set of historical events in terms of of astrological. Yeah. Uh, well, speaking we, of
2: karma, as we yeah. do on and off.
1: Yeah,
2: he came on Earth to do that
1: book. He
2: did. Yeah, he's mm-hmm. trying to restore astrological wisdom mm-hmm. to the contemporary West.
1: Mm-hmm. That's beautiful.
2: It, it's a very big job he has, mm-hmm. and he. But he, fortunately, he has both the intelligence and the sensitivity.
1: Mm-hmm. So, um, another subject that we haven't touched on yet is uh, your work, uh, and it's really interesting work, um, trying to come to terms with ecology, spirituality, and ethics. And, and I found that... Um, A fascinating effort on your part because what I heard you saying is, you know, you didn't come into this world to to do the ecology crisis stuff. Your friend Thomas Berry did come into the world to do that. Yes. You come out here, you take over doing CIIS. You find yourself immersed in a world of... Uh, of ecofeminism, of ecological studies, you come to the conclusion that um, that caring for the earth is really an obligatory ethical value, and you say that you say that about very very few things. But you didn't come into this in order to do this, so it's been a work, as you say, of obligation on your part right. to integrate ecology um, into your thinking. Can you say more about…
2: You put it perfectly. Yeah. Uh, I, I walked from, not from Thomas Berry's person, whom <laughs> mm-hmm. I have lived in gratitude and admiration my mm-hmm. entire life, uh, from when I was 14, uh, but from his passion for ecology. I wasn't interested. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, it, and you put it correctly. I would rather, I would actually rather not be interested now.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: Uh, at one point, I said, uh, it's, it's giving some lecture someplace, I, I said, uh, I'm I'm a person who's trying to turn an obligation into a into a passion,
3: mm-hmm.
2: and I, I'm not sure I've succeeded. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I think we all, uh, if we have any responsibility in the world, as I mm-hmm. as I do as a, you know, a professor and a mm-hmm. public person, mm-hmm. uh, we have to do this. Mm-hmm. Um, also, I have a, a great advantage that I haven't taken advantage of, which is uh, uh, Teilhard, whom I read deeply and, and love, and Steiner, who's a fabulous esoteric ecologist, mm-hmm. and I've never. I've never sort of mined that because <laughs> I wasn't interested. Uh, so now I, I'm trying to uh, sort of make up for lost time and doing what I would have done had I stayed with Thomas Berry instead of going into anthroposophy where I could have done ecology and didn't. I didn't pay any attention until biodynamic. I, I, I pay attention to biodynamic gardening until recently. I never. I have twelve books on biodynamic gardening on my shelf. I never read a one. I was president of the Steiner Institute, and every year there was a course on biodynamic. I never sat in for five minutes. Mm-hmm. I wasn't interested. Mm-hmm. So now, if you read anything, you know that we're facing some kind of calamity, catastrophe, maybe just total whatever. Uh, and so we, we can't, because of virtue ethics, mm-hmm. I can't set it out it's it's like the second world war you have to be in or worse you have to be involved so i'm doing what i can i'm you, not really very good at it
1: you had this wonderful uh thing called the next great work the Enneads at Esalen the and the hour of the unexpected which you did in 2007 it was yeah. um and um in this playful essay <laughs> Uh, you I did say, enjoy
2: it, I have to admit.
1: Yeah, you say that, you know, they, they come together at Esalen, and the people there, just so that everybody knows, are Goethe, Hegel, William James, Alfred North Whitehead, Rudolf Steiner, Sri Aurobindo, uh, Carl Jung, and Théo de Chardin, and the Dalai Lama, right? <laughs> These are the people who. All men, by the way. Come to. Deliberately all men. Right. And. Um, And so, you know, of the nine, eight are out of the body, and only the Dalai Lama is in the body. And they've come together basically because they realize that none of the prominent worldviews, theism, atheism, pantheism, pragmatism, existentialism, materialist, secularism, or various religious orthodoxies will meet the challenges of the 21st century. They agreed that their next meeting would have to articulate a shared vision of an evolving Earth community and a method by which such a vision could be extended and implemented. And they agreed to use Plato's Symposium because it climaxes with a revelation concerning Eros uh, as a model for their symposium. So you kind of follow through, you know, and say, you know, basically it was really complex and it was hard for them to figure out what they were going to do. The Enneads disagreed on many important topics, but they agreed that reality is more complex, more integral, more mysterious than the Cartesian-Newtonian paradigm. And so when it finally comes down to it, as diverse as the Enneads have shown themselves to be, several threads emerged and reemerged with regularity. The most prominent of these threads was the affirmation of the eternal feminine. Sri Aurobindo was ever conscious of his consort, the Mother. Teilhard was devoted to the Virgin Mother. Jung emphasized the Divine Mother archetype. Steiner argued for the identity of Isis, Mary, and Sophia. And so they take their seats. There are these two flip charts up. One has uh, Proverbs, where there is no vision, the people perish. And the other flip chart has Aurobindo, it is the hour of the unexpected. And So, um, what struck me here was that at the very end, Gaia Sophia reveals herself as the core of the next great pantheistic vision. The unexpected hour witnessed the manifestation of earth wisdom, of the transformation of dichotomies, and so forth. So, I mean, obviously this was an important piece to, for you to write in some way, you know, and here you take a bunch of your absolute favorite thinkers from the traditions that you've been immersed <laughs> in, and you get them together at Esalen, and you say they made full use of the baths and everything else, so they were enjoying themselves, and then what did they come up with but the affirmation of the divine feminine, and in the Unexpected hour, Gaia Sophia revealed herself as the core of the next great pan, panentheistic vision. What
2: panentheism.
1: Does, yeah. what, say again what pan-
2: panentheism means that the divine is throughout the whole of creation. There's no piece, no sand, no cell, mm-hmm. no mosquito that doesn't have divinity,
3: mm-hmm.
2: but that the divinity is mm-hmm. more than the creation. Beautiful. So say It's something. Whitehead, it's Teilhard, it's Aurobindo, it's all my guys.
1: So, right. So say something. Here, all your guys yes. get together and decide that the divine feminine is the heart of right. the, uh, So, can you say a little more about it?
2: <laughs> you, you did a great <laughs> job, Michael. Yeah, nothing, just reading you. nothing more to say. Uh, yeah, the, the great guys are great, but they're not adequate. And now it's time for feminine wisdom. And commun- feminine communities, families, mothers, uh, nuns, right? Not priests, not bishops, not cardinals, but nuns uh, who are serving the poor mm-hmm. and the sick uh, to be the source of wisdom.
1: Mm-hmm. So, what does that mean for the traditions that you have spent your life working on? They all have the capacity. To, um,
2: um, what I say? Uh, to feature, to, to prioritize, to privilege uh, the feminine, and they better do it. Mm-hmm. So, so I mean, the Catholic Church to my, is no longer a friend of mine. They're just on the wrong side of history, mm-hmm. it, and it's very bad because it's enormous and it's powerful, and it could change the world.
1: And you don't think this pope is doing anything?
2: No, no, I didn't say that. Actually, Jim Carroll, who wrote the fabulous piece in The New Yorker, is a Mm -hmm. friend of mine, Mm -hmm. Um, and he's coming out in November Mm -hmm. here. Um, A great piece. Mm -hmm. I don't know how far he can go. Mm -hmm. But it's really late. Mm -hmm. They've done terrible damage. They've ruined people's lives. Mm -hmm. People are really, really angry. I mean, women are really angry, as they Mm -hmm. should be. Mm -hmm. And men, if they're smart, should be as well, uh, if they're paying attention. So that's that's a tradition that could that could really do something, because um, they have a billion people and a lot of money and a, and a big rich tradition.
0: You're listening to a conversation with Professor Robert McDermott and Michael Lerner.
2: Um, and uh, Steiner, I think, is okay. Mm-hmm. There aren't any really bad texts. And right in Philosophy of Freedom, his first important book, Mm -hmm. there's a whole chapter on people are not to be judged or prized according to gender or class. Mm
3: -hmm.
2: Really clear. Uh, um, Teilhard is a beautiful thing. All right, Yes, you could complain he's a celibate Catholic priest, but you could also say he's an exquisite, uh, gentle soul who Mm -hmm. serves the earth and loves the earth. Loves just Mm -hmm. absolutely totally enchanted by the mystery of the earth. Um, Jung is not my favorite feminist, exactly, but he does have, he does recognize the Divine Feminine. Um, And and
1: the importance of the Assumption of Mary in the Catholic Church. Yes. That was a big deal for him.
2: Yeah, I know. He he actually says it's the most important religious event in 500 years. Right. I think that's wacko, Uh, but uh, I'm glad that he's at least on that side. For whatever it means. Well,
1: I think one of the reasons he felt that was he believed in quaternities Yeah. and he thought the triads were unstable Right, and you needed the feminine right. and it was absent and therefore it was psychologically important and of course uh, he believed that one of the reasons he stayed away from the east was he believed that a yoga of the Christ would reveal itself right. and because the Christ for young was almost identical with the self and it's Highest manifestation, you can see why he would regard the assumption of Mary as such a critical dimension.
2: Of, I agree. Yeah. You 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 put it perfectly. Yeah. I uh, we're completely agreeing on yeah. what he said and what he meant. Mm-hmm. But I would rather uh, have him and others feature Sophia, the divine feminine, mm-hmm. instead of uh, leaving the the Trinity mm-hmm. in, in its inherited form. Mm-hmm. Uh, to to feature Sophia as the the, uh, the full dimension of Christ mm-hmm. and a full dimension of the Spirit,
3: mm-hmm.
2: then I think we'd we'd have something that would um, um, sort of nuance uh, the Trinity away from uh, male male concepts and into something quite
1: new. What about in the Jewish tradition, the role of the Shekinah? uh, Yeah, it's the same concept. It's the same concept, but my question is, since Judaism was also so strongly patriarchal, uh, just as you critique Catholicism saying it's late in the day, the Shekinah has been a powerful part of mystical Judaism for forever, but in your view, does that redeem patristic Judaism because of the role of the Shekinah, or do you have the same problem the with same, it? That you absolutely throw, the same so. critique, but they don't do as much damage. They've been victims, Right. but the Christian
2: tradition does mm-hmm. the damage because mm-hmm. they have all the power. Mm-hmm. They have the number, the money, and the power.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: In some centuries, they've had the guns. Mm-hmm. Uh, so th- that, that's why that critique. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm not saying that if the Jews had the power, mm-hmm. that they would... Are, done better. They would do a better job. It's mm-hmm. it's extremely patriarchal,
1: mm-hmm.
2: uh, and it's not the best part of religion.
1: But has any has any great? Has, I mean, you critique the word world religions in a good way. But it, has any world religion ever done a good job uh, on the uh, divine feminine?
2: No. Uh, this is the time of the return of the divine feminine. Right. Andrew Harvey's right. book, The Return right. of the Divine Feminine. Right. Um, so no, the religions. Are really important because, as Mary Evelyn Tucker says, that's where the people are. Mm-hmm. That's why she does ecology in relation to the religions. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and so, if we're concerned with feminism, I think one of the best places to to address our concerns and commitment is to the religions. They could really be helpful. Same Jim Carroll uh, is uh, staying with the Catholic Church because he thinks it's a, a really po- powerful, possible force, mm-hmm. for good.
1: So who are the women writers, thinkers, and so forth, who you believe are sowing the seeds of our understanding of uh, the divine feminine?
2: Yeah, a lot some of them are the uh, are the ecologists, mm-hmm. you know, Charlene Spratnack and Carol Christ mm-hmm. and, and people like that. Mm-hmm. Um, some of them are st- the Buddhists of... Mm-hmm. Uh, um Pema children mm-hmm. people like that um then the uh, great there are wonderful poets Mary Oliver mm-hmm. um, um who else I would count maybe Kathleen rain maybe mm-hmm. I wouldn't mm-hmm. um uh, that's complicated um then uh, th- then there's also um, women in the in the sort of political, justice sphere, I'm thinking of uh, Hannah Arendt, mm-hmm. very important, um, and there's Martha Nussbaum, mm-hmm. doing very important work, philosophically. Mm-hmm. Um, but they did, they. Then we don't have, like I gave up this book that I was writing, mm-hmm. uh, Seven you Sages, find for, I, you know, because Blavatsky is right. too complicated, right. uh, biographically as well as in right. my thinking. Um, Annie Besant, right. again, very complicated. Mm-hmm. I really couldn't stand behind either one of them mm-hmm. with, you know, <coughs> unqualified conviction. Mm-hmm. Um, so we don't have, for sociological reasons that I hope are changing, uh, we don't have people like Teilhard and Merton and uh, Steiner and, and Aurobindo. Uh, uh, um, uh, we don't have women of that commanding um, commanding influence.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: Right. Which isn't to say we don't have women of that genius and importance but sociology is such that until very recently, the, the population were reading men more than
1: women. I wonder, I wonder if the real movement may not come through either philosophy or religion. I mean, you've, you've pointed to the defects of religion. We certainly know the defects of contemporary philosophy, the kind of philosophy that you represent and that I am drawn to is an extraordinarily minority uh, lineage, and so I wonder whether. And yet, if you just live and breathe in the world, um, certainly this is Commonweal's experience that there that the power of the women who have shown up to work at Commonweal have defined this place. I'm sure. And um, and. Um, I'm just wondering whether we're using the right measuring stick of people active in religion or, or philosophy. It could be that sense that you know the cosmic Christ is not going to be an individual, but a collectivity of consciousness. Whether you speak of the cosmic Christ or simply the manifestation of inner light or whatever one wants to say, maybe it's happening all around us. Uh, in enormously powerful ways, in in ways that don't puff themselves up, but rather are people humbly doing the work.
2: I mean, I think that's the way the ideas concludes. Right. Uh, Gaia Sophia reveals itself to a group of women mm-hmm. who are mostly unnamed and, right. and, as you said, not puffed up. Right. And so, uh, when Gari Mathai is not, was not puffed up, right. she just... Made an incredible yeah. democracy movement planting trees in Africa, or yeah. Rigoberto Menchu. So I mean, I think that if you want to know the great people, I think we should look to the Nobel Prize winners. Right. right. Uh, th- those are the people who are speaking truth right. to power.
1: Right. Yeah. One of the things you you have this um, amazing karma biography and rebirth bibliography uh, on your website that is a list of some of your favorite
3: books.
1: <laughs> yes. And it is a very long list of fabulous, fabulous books, which I will you know, just Google uh, Robert McDermott at CIIS to get this. But one of the things you revealed in, in, in your autobiographical reflections is that um, you had a really hard time learning to re- read fast that in other words even later apparently your whole life your whole life you you read slowly i read slowly and so here you are you know i I'm, I'm, I'm modestly well read but i'm nothing compared to what you've done here
2: you've done a few other things Mike. i other mean things, let's let's but, be clear
1: but um this and I, it's just so fascinating that this is done by somebody who reads very slowly.
2: Okay, first off, I cheat.
1: You tell me that, <laughs> but tell us
2: all how you cheat. I, I cheat, I, I don't read everything. Right. I read, I read in books, Right. and I very seldom finish. Oh, here's a book I read, every word cover to cover, right. is uh, Anne Baring and Jules Cash for two women, you both mm-hmm. Jungian analysts in England, mm-hmm. wrote The History of the Concept of the Goddess.
1: All right. The Myth of the Goddess, Evolution of an Image. Wow. So you read that? read every word. But most things you don't read. I don't read everything. So do you have a strategy when you look at a book of how you're going to read it to kind of get the essence? My father taught me one. I'm curious what
2: you Oh, he ought to know. Uh, um, I don't know that it's a strategy, but I'm usually behind schedule. I'm usually trying to do more than I can do. Uh, So I tend to look at the index. Right. And I see if this person is talking about what I'm interested in.
3: Yeah.
2: And then I go to if it says, you know, uh, uh, St. Paul mm-hmm. or Goethe or Emerson, I go and I read those pages and I say, mm-hmm. wow, that's a great 12 pages on Emerson. Mm-hmm. So then I go and look at somebody else. Mm-hmm. Then I might read the whole book.
3: Mm-hmm. Uh,
2: but I might just read the seven people I'm interested in or the seven ideas I'm interested mm-hmm. in. Um, so I'm looking for, I'm always looking for things. The other part about me that is probably unusual, and I don't know if it's a boast or an apology, it's just a fact, is that I I learn almost exclusively what might be worth teaching.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: I hardly ever read anything that wouldn't be helpful to, to students or some... Who's reading a book I'm writing
1: now? Do you, do you learn mostly by reading or by listening or by combination?
2: Both. I I, I do by reading and by I a, I'm in a wonderful department. i mean, yeah. Rick Tarnas. We already discussed yeah, yeah. Brian Swim. Yeah. Rick uh, uh, Sean Kelly right. uh, Hegelian and now really deep, devoted ecologist, and a relatively new colleague, five years, Elizabeth Allison, Mm -hmm. does religion and ecology, Mm -hmm. and other faculty as well. So yeah, I learned from them. I I always try to teach with somebody. Mm -hmm. Almost every, certainly every year, if not every semester. Mm -hmm. I give one course with another person,
3: Mm -hmm. and I learn. Mm -hmm.
2: Uh, So I've taught Tayard and Thomas Berry with Brian Swim. I've taught Jung and Steiner with Rick and with Sean. I've taught, um, uh, yeah, I could go on and on like that. So, yeah, I'm learning by by listening, uh, talking to people, and reading. And But the reading, I'm like a, uh, I'm, I'm, I'm looking for things. I'm looking for ideas. I'm looking for insights.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: Um, but I'm not, I have a, my good friend, Sean, I'm always saying, you know, he reads 500-page book, books just because he feels like it. Mm-hmm. I hardly ever do that. I'm always too practical, I guess.
1: Mm-hmm. Uh, so, my father's method, which is not too dissimilar from yours, is um, he'd look at the table of contents, he'd look at the index, he'd read the preface in the first chapter, he'd read the last chapter, and then he'd leaf through to see what else interested We're very close, yeah.
2: almost the same. Yeah. I, I usually read the, forward, the um, the preface, mm-hmm. uh, or the forward.
1: You also want to read the quotes on the back cover, because they oh, tell yeah. you who the person's, you know, audience is.
2: No, it's not. It just tells you who the person hangs out with. Well, all right. And most of them so are re- recommended by Larry Darcy.
1: Yeah. Right. <laughs> That's
2: true. <laughs> That's He's true. a lovely man. And, and, and I know him well enough to know that he can't say no. Yeah. So <laughs> right. I, I, if I need a blurb, I'm going to call Larry. Right. Right. <laughs> right. <laughs> right. <laughs> But Rick, poor Rick uh-huh. He actually insists on reading the whole book Before he'll write a blurb No, I do that too It's oh a, terrible
1: my God. Fault. <laughs> a terrible fault Actually,
2: I don't actually, do many
1: A few people ask me for blurbs
2: so Right, I, like, I don't do many blurbs Because yes. I can't, you can't read, read every movie. book <laughs> That's written by a friend right. I mean, we know people who write books Right, right. And somebody says, hey, I want you to read this book uh, I'm not promising
1: I just opened this at random This is Darnus' book um, A quote from Nietzsche There are a thousand paths that have never yet been trodden. Humanity and humanity's earth are still unexhausted and undiscovered. Watch and listen, you solitaries. From the future come winds with a stealthy flapping of wings, and good tidings go out to delicate ears. I know. Isn't that beautiful?
2: So before I was complaining about the existentialists, but when Rick talks about Nietzsche, it's... I mean, it's like a Christian talking about Jesus. It's absolutely holy. There were students in his seminar on Nietzsche that were crying with his affinity with Nietzsche. Right,
1: right.
2: But of course he knows other people who are world creators as well as the, the Nietzsche world or what the world that Nietzsche was creating. Mm-hmm. Is not, it's not, it's a very rarefied atmosphere. Right. Yeah. We wouldn't be safe. So do you know that Steiner visited Nietzsche?
1: I didn't know that.
2: Nietzsche yeah. was already in a coma. Steiner was a young man oh. uh, 20, in his 20s.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: And um, he went, and going back now to death and dying, you'd, I think you'll like this, Michael. Mm-hmm. He, uh, he went and visited Nietzsche, and there, as he says, the great man was on his bed, unable to respond. Mm-hmm and now Clairvoyant Steiner right, could see these things, said, and I could see the tragedy in front of me that the, the soul and the spirit of the great man was hovering above. It's like, like near-death experience, mm-hmm. right? And the physical and the etheric body were uh, mm. prisoners in the bed. Mm. And he, Nietzsche, this great figure of our time, sort of the prophet of our time, unable to get it together.
1: Mm.
2: It was humpty-dumpty at the highest possible level.
1: One of the things that you say about Steiner, which is, is really so powerful, is that Steiner was hopeful about the future of humanity. In other words, he thought that there were great struggles ahead, but he had that sense that that we have a mission and that the earth has a mission and that the mission of the earth and humanity before far in the future humanity departs from the earth is to realize the truth of love.
2: He does. It's, it's, um, it's a very long, long drama. Mm-hmm. He, he might not be optimistic about the
1: immediate future. I said hopeful. Yeah,
2: sorry, that's better. Hopeful, yes. You you make that distinction. It's a very good distinction. I, I, yeah, I'm going to take it up. (laughs) It's a good one. Uh, He is hopeful Mm -hmm. uh, about the future, and I'm always interested in this in terms of our ecological situation Mm -hmm. because he thinks that the great beings that brought about creation Mm -hmm. are really great. They are really great. So we could burn the earth and there would still be beings working to bring about the triumph of love.
3: Mm
2: -hmm. And that could make us relax, except that he's very clear, this part is even more clear about, that the the mission of humanity is to love the earth. Mm. And humanity cannot leave, the should not, unless it does something really terrible, should not want to leave the earth and should not leave the earth until the earth is completely spiritualized by human love.
1: Mm. Yeah, big. Very beautiful.
2: Very big. Yeah. I haven't written about that, but I'm kind of growing into it.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: But, And I'm very nervous about some people then saying, well then, you know maybe it's time, which is not at all what he thinks. No, he's not said at all, long, not at all. Long, long time. That's absolutely not what he thinks. Right. And besides, we don't love the earth; we wouldn't be polluting it every day, all day long. Right. It's not even close to what he's right. talking about. Right. right. After we love the earth, and we stopped polluting the Ganges, then maybe there could be another evolutionary stage, mm-hmm. but not,
1: mm. not. Not in seven generations. Right, right. I'd like to open this up now for any final reflections from all of you. Questions, comments? Yeah, I have a question. Um, When you started talking earlier, you're using the word wisdom,
0: and the way you were using it, I'm just wondering if it's different than the way I would use wisdom, Uh, because
1: you're speaking historically, and. also, and also my second question was, what century was it that you said that we stopped uh, investigating wisdom?
2: I would say probably in the 16th century, after the Renaissance. The Renaissance was the last time that wisdom was an honored uh, ideal. Once we get to Francis Bacon, We're talking about knowledge is power. And that just becomes more and more dominant. People usually blame Descartes, but I think maybe Bacon.
1: (laughs) Bacon, who famously said that he wanted to torture the truth out of nature, out of mother nature. But But just on this point, because I think it's an important question, you have a good critique of the traditionalists, um, but one of the key traditionalist positions is that the West lost its way in the Renaissance by turning away from sacred truth to, you know, uh, you know sort of giving up on sacred truth. And, um, of course, the Renaissance was many things and it had many dimensions to it. But do you subscribe? Uh, no, I bet you don't subscribe to it because Steiner said that this this journey into individualism was an essential dimension even though it took us away from sacred truth. So that would be your view of the Renaissance.
2: But I will also, I disagree, if the, the traditionals are in agreement with that, uh, with this statement that you yeah. just said, I'm, I'm disagreeing with them because I think the, the loss of interiority and wisdom, which may be the same. Uh, uh, really didn't begin until after the Renaissance. It really, be- I think, it begins with Francis Bacon.
1: Okay,
2: right, a huge change, mm-hmm. right. But going back to your question, I'm sorry. The, the w- yes, the time when I thought that wisdom really was lost as a shared ideal. I'm guessing, or not I'm guessing. I'm suggesting it was the 16th century in the West. Not everywhere, just in the West.
1: And wisdom being something you explore for deeper knowledge or wisdom being something that someone has because they've had a a life experience and they have some insight into it?
2: I would say both of those. Uh, And it's uh, right at the beginning of our conversation this morning, I suggested that it might be deep knowledge, uh, um, self-reflectively understood, that's the epistemology part, and uh, w- sort of able or worthy to reveal itself in action. Three parts that then loop around. And because of the action, we then find out what's real and what's knowable, and it keeps going roundy, roundy, round.
1: So just to repeat that, uh, deep, please say the three parts again. So-
2: deep knowing deep knowing self reflective in the sense that you know what you're doing
1: yeah
2: and uh, that then that combination then reveals itself in, uh, in action. efficacious action
1: so that again is ontology epistemology yes. and no ontology and epi-
2: oh yes ontology epistemology and ethics yes and ethics. Thank
1: you. right yeah sorry yeah so those are the three interacting yes
4: yeah. Did Steiner see... I'm interested in this... Um, I'm sorry, I can't hear. I'm interested in the what you were talking about Steiner saying, that humans can't leave the earth. Your, the way you said that was humans can't leave until the earth is completely spiritualized by human love. Did Steiner see the earth as a living consciousness? You know? I mean, as we might think of as Gaia. Yeah, Gaia. I, mean, what, I, think his, I, I think
2: his idea of earth is Gaia. Yes.
4: What does that mean? Um completely
2: spiritualized, and I get that. Yeah, it's not so clear, um, in my mind. Uh, But I guess I think of it as when the spirituality or the spiritual beings that live in the earth are able to be in harmonious relationship with all of the species, including the human species who have the capacity to destroy them. And are doing so.
4: Beautiful,
2: thank you. You're talking about the gnomes and the sylphs and yeah, the among other things. Yeah, yeah. He's lots of lectures on gnomes and sylphs and mm-hmm. sylphs and endines and there's lots of levels above and lots of levels below.
5: Yes. I don't know what I'm asking here. Um, it might be about levels below, or if I can just say in the most general sense, if we've all got a guardian angel, you know, what's the problem? You know, why are we having such a hard time loving the earth or getting it right? If I have a divine particle in every piece of me and everybody else does, why aren't we just more divine? I mean, or could we ask, you know, where does evil dwell or, you know, why is this so hard to do? Yeah,
2: because... are we good? Yeah, why are we good? Well, one thing, we have genitals. We have I think That's good though. It, yes, it is good if we know how to use them properly. <laughs> and we also have we also have uh, um, we have fears, a lot of fears that make us protect ourselves at other people's expense, which is why everybody needs to store up a lot of money in case they retire or in case they get old, whatever. Uh, that's why we can't give money away to poor people, even though we have too much, can't have too much, of what you don't need. So, we have a lot of reasons to misbehave.
0: Mm-hmm. You're listening to a conversation with Professor Robert McDermott and Michael Lerner.
5: But it sounds like on a psychological level, on a personal level, but, but all these other things are, seem to be on bigger levels that are affecting planets. I mean, are, is there evil in the planets too? I mean, are not, there evil forces that we're dealing with? Well, Do I have an evil angel?
2: Might not have an evil angel but according to Steiner and I think according to all the great certainly according to Aurobindo big time there are beings that are working against humanity.
5: Okay that was
2: a big question. big so he's I didn't want to say it. Yeah yeah it's okay to say girlfriends uh, Aurobindo's argument against Gandhi basically was Gandhi you are such a silly little man do you not know that the Nazis are involved with beings who are working to destroy human freedom That's what the war is about. Wake up. Mm. And Jung decided the same after a while. He was a little slow, but he did come around and said, I get it, this is actually a two-leveled war. Proxies, the humans were the proxies for the bad beings fighting the good beings.
5: So we just weren't talking about the war going on today. I'm sorry? We weren't talking about this other war that's going on between good and evil.
2: We weren't but I was thinking of it all along because I think our problem is that where I'm very susceptible to tempters. So in Steiner's view, there are two tempters, Uh, uh, Lucifer who says, don't worry, you're really holy, you're sacred, you're sublime, you have an angel, you have an inner life, you don't really have to do safe sex, you don't have to pay your taxes, you don't have to listen to a boring person, you just have to be important and just keep going, you're fine, all right? Which is not true, but we get ourselves to believe it. The other one is Ariman who says there's nothing but. There's nothing but bodies, nothing but pleasure, nothing but good food and good wine, good cars, good apartment, good views. And that's what life is all about.
1: And Steiner said you needed a balance of the two. You
2: need the, he thinks that Christ is the balance, because Christ is a divine being who takes on a human body and gets executed. So he says, that's, that's a middle position. That holds the, 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 the physical and the spiritual in one being. That's a, it's a model, in other words, which we all should do. Yes. But we mostly don't do. You would say but same. it's a great, great question.
4: Sorry. Mm-hmm. Yeah. This morning you said the soul disappears, when you die, the soul disappears right. and goes into spirit. Is that a collective spirit, or is it an individual spirit, or what is the yeah. concept of
2: that? There are very, very big spirits that are, you're calling collective. I mean, Buddha, he thinks is a really big spirit, really big, all right? And Christ is a really big spirit, there are other really big spirits. Uh, but there are also individual spirits who have, who have, been, had, have lived lives as Socrates and uh, Fra Angelico or whatever, and they keep coming back. He then tracks some of them. So, one example. He says um, uh, Elijah came back as John the Baptist. John the Baptist came back as Raphael. Raphael came back as Novalis, this amazing nineteenth century poet, scientist who died at twenty-nine with a huge body of work. Um, and then probably had done enough, like you know, like Mozart or Keats. Uh, and so there are these enormous souls who continue to have very meaningful incarnations, though they may not all be, they may not be famous. Like he says, Thomas Aquinas had a not very impressive. He was impressive, but he didn't have a big historical at at, at another life. All right, mm-hmm. that he did have. Um, so yeah, then he tries to track the souls, but it's kind of complicated because the souls and the spirits are mixed up, and sometimes souls get given. You know, so Steiner thinks that the 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 Jesus that was. Chronicled in the Gospel of Luke had parts of Krishna and Buddha, and the choir was actually uh, a choir made up of Buddha's uh, subtle body, his his his, uh, uh, sambhogakaya body, which is a Mahayana, not a Mm -hmm. Theravada, right? Mm -hmm. Um, So it gets very out there. (laughs) Yes, you can see. You you say that's a novel. I'm not going there. Mm -hmm.
4: Uh, Well. Oh, other beings like angels, for right. example. I mean, are they ad- another hierarchy that yes. develops out of the spirit, or were they ab- above this? Do they, they,
1: do they interact ex- with yeah. each
2: other? He accepts the idea, which is traditional, um, uh, Greek and Hebraic, and certainly Christian, uh, of uh, hierarchies of. Uh, and angels, is a hierarchy, and uh, archangel, and archai, and 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 um, dynamists, and powers, and thrones, and um,
4: etc. Because I've had experiences of, I want to call them conversations with just in healing, right. the, a presence is what right. I call them. I yeah. don't know <laughs> who i who the presence is, but it's right. a whatever. Right. Is that a spirit? Is that an? I mean. It doesn't matter, does it? It does matter. It, <laughs> it matters tremendously,
2: but, yeah. I, but I couldn't possibly guess.
3: Right.
2: I think a lot of people talk about God you know, appearing to them. I think it's probably an angel, but I honestly don't know. I totally don't even know in my own life, let alone in somebody else's. Right.
4: Mm-hmm. But it's always accompanies healing. It's, a, it's like a, something that I do. It would be called prayer, I suppose. Wonderful. But, it works. Yes, it's wonderful. And there is a presence. Yes, it's hard to define what that is. Yes, it is. Mm-hmm. It is
2: because we're in a we're in, at a stage of consciousness of evolution of consciousness right. in the yes. modern contemporary West when the knowledge of the spirit is hard to get. Even even Saint Paul said we know through a glass darkly. Well, it's even darker now. So it's very hard. And if you're getting a presence congratulations, enjoy it, etc. Well, it's wonderful. It's a great gift.
4: And I think other people do too.
2: Of course they do. Right. Yeah, yeah, But not everybody.
4: And the other question I have is astrology. Is, are those energies the only way I've been able to sort of think about that? <clears throat> the astrology, in other yeah. words, yep. energies is what I call
2: energy. Yeah, a lot of people use the word energy. I'm not so excited okay. about it. What would you use? I, I would say it's a psychic power. Okay. Psychic meaning the level of soul psychology is the study of the soul and psyche is the same level is soul right so that makes sense to me but uh, if you talk energy it feels very very physical okay but that's as much as some people are willing to affirm okay that's fine um, but if you could get a little further that would be good
4: okay <laughs> thank you
1: yeah other thoughts yes right there Leah somebody over there was going to ask a question yeah I'm sorry mr. Go ahead.
6: Okay. Could you speak a little bit about um,
4: duality? About about duality. Duality. From your perspective, from duality dual, dual. as in dualism? Dualism. Yeah, duality. Yeah. yeah, yeah. yeah. Yes. The, this dark and light, evil.
2: Oh, that that duality.
4: And and, and yeah. in the overall uh, view of creation or what Schiner? Yeah. The, is it necessary? Is it not? Is love? Is there? Is, is it a battle? Is, how do you see it? So hard. <laughs> <laughs> okay,
2: uh, this is as far as I can get, yeah. but I'm sure <laughs> lots of other people know better. Uh, we have a few choices. As in, there are some very fundamental choices. Uh, here's one of the, that question asks us to make a fundamental choice. Is how far up does evil go? That's the way I think about it. Clearly, there's evil at our level. There are two million sex slaves. All right, that to my mind, that's flat-out evil. Those those men own those young women's bodies for money. All right, it's like Alabama in 1800. Evil, or bombing mothers and children with, etc. Okay, and letting people starve. So that's true. How high up does it go? Is there a tempter who's evil? Is Satan, for example, or etc. St. Uh, scientists says, "No, they are not evil, as such, but they throw us off. They're slightly either uh, representing values from another time, or, bef- or either past time or pre-time. For example, one the way I think about the communist revolution." And the whole communist experiment for 70 years, which involved horrific suffering of millions of people, it was probably a good idea. But people who tried to do it weren't able to do it. The French Revolution was a good idea. But people weren't able to do it. All right, Couldn't do Brook Farm either. So uh, how high up do you want to go? Jung goes the highest up in his account of evil. Evil is all the way up. So he really is, I think, a Manichaean, a dualist. There's good and there's evil, and it goes all the way up. Steiner is not all the way up. He says that the, the tempters are all part of the divine. But they're a little bit wacko. They, they, they're a little bit, they throw us off, because, you know, they're not, they're not balanced. They're not in the Aristotelian mean. One is, everything's okay, don't worry about it. The other one's... Everything's flat. Don't try, or just basically, you know, look at videos, and that's that's all there is. Which doesn't mean that the whole technological revolution is a mistake. It means that it's a new opportunity to misuse and drop out. All right. So he is, as Mike was saying before, perfectly, that he sees the ultimate triumph. Of the divine, and the over and universal, total redemption, but in the process, a lot of people and a lot of species are going to suffer terribly. Mm-hmm. They have been suffering, and they're going to keep suffering. Yes.
7: Um, I was having trouble contextualizing my question for a while, um, so I guess I will just ask.
2: just let it happen,
7: um, which is. Do you think all people have equal access to the divine?
2: No, definitely not. I have hardly any compared to Aurobindo, Dalai Lama, etc. I mean, you know, at two years old, he said, no, that's the bead, that's the cane, that's, that's the thing. I'm going to Lhasa and I'm going to be Dalai 14. He had huge access. So some,
7: so some people go in the mansion and find different rooms, and some go to higher levels of the mansion exactly. and come back and describe it differently.
2: exactly. And some people can only get to work and get home again. <laughs>
7: and is there anything? I guess sort of what what got me there was this um, sort of like uncomfort discomfort I had with when you said like you were you were struggling for women writers and. Uh, and you described that some of them didn't have, you know, none of them had the commanding authority, is what you said, which is because the men have the power,
3: right?
2: So they don't see a, they don't yeah. see what they have, yeah.
7: Right. It's just, I mean, it's a it's just a a male quality, you know, commanding authority, uh, or that description I feel like is very male, and so yeah. it made me wonder. And then we sort of got to this thing was like, oh, well, maybe females are sort of like you know, exercise, they're actually like doing the things instead of like thinking about and describing them in this unified ways, they're like planting the trees and they're like sort of taking care of the families and they're sort of like actively doing. And is there is there something divine about this action? It's like, is that accessing the divine in some way just by doing in the same way that like, sort of this like head, heart, like, I don't know, the triad. Is there something about just like, I don't know, the act of doing ceramics or something Great. that's like Accessing
2: divine? Great question. Thank you. I don't think I did a good enough job. Uh, so give me another chance. Sure. Okay. Uh, it's really perfect, just the way you put it. Um, what I was trying to say, but maybe it was too indirect, is that the paradigm that we've been living with really for thousands of years, probably, but certainly intensely. No, I'm going to to stick to what I first said. Thousands of years. All right. Has been the male patriarchal paradigm. All right. And so those uh, testosterone virtues having to do with power are in charge. Okay. And women are disadvantaged, undervalued, et cetera. All over the world. We're not the worst. We're not okay, but we're not the worst. Okay. Now, uh, several things could happen. Women could be more like men and seize power and um, ignore the interior, neglect the children, be lousy lovers, just be really into impatience and competition. And then it would be sort of 50-50. Both genders are in it together. But it could happen, slowly. It is happening, slowly that men and women together are saying, this male project hasn't really worked out that well. A lot of guys got ahead, a lot of women got killed and squashed and raped, it's not working out, it's time for a change. And then the qualities that women, by virtue of biology, sociology, power, money, have cultivated fabulously, will then be as prized as they should, which is, more worthy of admiration and esteem than the male virtues. Male now being psychological terms, not, I should say masculine, all right? Psychological terms. That could be a really, really big change and that's partly happening. Now, when I was talking about that there aren't uh, many or maybe even any women, and Michael used the term puffed up, right? There aren't so many women doing work that is yet recognized as substantial as the men of let's say the first half of the 20th century, or maybe even the second half. All right, that is a whole sociological, psychological situation which obviously needs to be changed. Both because women need to do those jobs, and some of them are, I mentioned six, seven, eight, ten. 10, there's probably thousands, but certainly them. And also, the people who are so busy doing those jobs, which is mostly, which is men, predominantly, uh, need to see that what they're valuing is way, way, way overrated. Knowledge, money, and power are mostly overrated. Love is not overrated. So a lot of things are going on at once. I, I think you know this better than I do because you know it experientially, day in and day out, and I know it theoretically, I know it a little bit experientially too. Um, I mean, I have a wife for 50 years, I have a daughter, right? I have st- women students, and I read books. Uh, so, well, I see several things happening, and what you're looking for, at least what I suspect you're looking for in your question, is happening, but it's happening slowly. It needs to happen more quickly, and, and globally. Like, for example, India, we think India is so spiritual, so wonderful, had all these gurus or whatever, the fate of women in India is horrific, as bad as South Africa. Maybe not that bad. South Africa is probably the worst, but really, really bad. Okay, all that coming, all that has to change. All right, so there need to be more women philosophers and it has to be m- more men like women, as soon as possible. Like women being the people who do the relations. Because when anybody gets sick, it's the women. Every time, nine out of 10, it's going to be the women who's going to take care of the babies. In Robert Bellard's amazing book, uh, uh, Religion and Human Evolution, I learned that mammalian females have been nursing their young for 220 million years. So the people think that men and women are the same. I think I'm missing something. Right? But at the same time, the, dis, the imbalance is really bad. And, and we have enough freedom that we can change it. So anyway, I'm on your team. If I didn't do a good enough job, tell me.
7: Oh, yeah. no, 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 I think, that, I think that that was fantastic and it certainly spoke to one, two, the majority of my question. But I, there was this other aspect which is, is there something that women are current, like that women, not just women, but people in general, are doing now that is accessing the divine that is in this way other than publishing philosophical treaties? Or Every day, things. all day That's long.
6: If I may. Yeah, go ahead. Can I jump in, just because? If it is the same, go ahead. You're, well, only, I think if, it is. If oh, it is, isn't, we'll come back. Okay. Go ahead. Your question was very much like the question I was gonna ask, and, and I was thinking, well, when you were saying, um, what are the realms you said? Philosopher, poet, uh, I can't remember if you said any other realms, and I was thinking novelists. It, it's not a confident list,
2: it was just in the moment right, what occurred right. to me.
6: But, you know, but then you could add um, mothers. Because, I mean, there's, there's something, especially, you know, kind of early in motherhood, there's something that's so profoundly wise that's, I mean, it's you, you can't even describe totally. it to anybody else. I
2: thought I did say mother, but if I didn't, I should have, because I always think about it. Always. Always, always.
6: Yeah. So, I, I was just... I also get
2: in trouble for it, by the way.
6: Oh, yeah. Of course. All right. Because we're it's also new, like you said. I think you just said this, but I mean, how new is, is feminism? There was the first wave and the... 1920s, and then the second wave in the...
2: We're thought to be in the third wave, but I think some people count differently.
6: Yeah, right, and I have a lot of doubts, given that young girls are growing up wearing thongs, and, you know, exposed to so much uh, terrible media. That's now even more pervasive than it ever was. But, um... is th- tough. Oh God, I media think it's, is really it's tough. huge. But. Mm-hmm.
1: Right. Did your question get finished being uh, answered? Yeah, I think so. Okay, I think good. Sort of and that. you had a comment or question? Yeah, to... I, I was curious,
8: um, interested in this idea of Steiner as an esoteric ecologist. And um, one question that I had that I'm, I've been wondering about is that there's it feels like definitely there's a, the solution to or a the potential path as the answer to an ecological crisis is um, working on it on a spiritual level right? that there has to be a um, spiritual consciousness brought to it or there's the the kind of actions that you're describing of a doing that's not necessarily like a thinking our way out of it or using the same technologies that got us into the problem so whether it's a contemplative work or an artistic work or whatever it is there's a, a, an element of Spiritual consciousness that is some form of answer to ecological catastrophe. And so I'm wondering about bridging the divide between a spiritual consciousness and action because what I see a lot is that, like, people who are very spiritually inclined or, or committed and, and feel like, you know, I'm doing my practice in service to the earth, I believe in supporting Mother Nature with my spiritual practice, etc., it doesn't necessarily change their, or our actions, right, so that I would still, for example, like, have a really devoted spiritual path and, like, then go to Good Earth and use a, a plastic spoon, right, and not be aware, like, have my spiritual development over here, and then my actions here, and then I'm, like, inadvertently killing a bird when my plastic spoon ends up in the ocean and a bird eats it, right? So there's a disconnect that I'm I'm not sure how to, um, if you see a way, if you see the disconnect, A, and...
2: Of course I see the disconnect, you, As you put it you, perfectly. How do you
3: bridge that?
2: Yeah, yeah, great, great question, and more than a question. It's a deep observation, and so, yeah, what can we say about it? Uh, I think that there's a disconnect. We are disconnected, <laughs> okay? We're dualists in the sense of we're... Upper level, lower level, where material, where spiritual, where our genders are oppositional. I mean, we're just fragmented every day, all day long. So the question is not why are we fragmented, it's because you know, we're human with spirit and, and body. So of course we're fragmented and split. So what can we do to get it together again, okay? And so the, the, the people who are saying, I'm helping the earth, I'm meditating, might be helping the earth. Uh, by meditating, but that should spill over into the, into the plastic. Okay. And the people who go to church then might be, you know, really comfortable with gross economic inequality and treating people like garbage every day, all day long, when they're not in church. Disconnect. Okay. Uh, and lots of professors talk about high ideals and mistreat their children or husbands or wives or whatever. Okay, so you've got all that. Now, what? the only answer that I c- come up with that's kind of both simple, but I think it's true, is to use the test of love. If it's the meditation is really an act of love, it will leak into action. If it is actually an exercise in self-promotion, it will not. So love is the ultimate, like, you know, The Gita has knowledge, Bhagavad Gita has knowledge, has action, has meditation, but I think the top is love. And certainly the teachings of Jesus is love. And I think the Dalai Lama calls it compassion, but it's really love. Love is the answer. It's so simple and so hard at the same time. So if they're really doing what they say they're doing, it will leak into love, into action. And if it doesn't, it's probably not love. It's it's deceived. It's a person thinking they're doing great and they're not. Here's an interesting example. Aurobindo went to his room, right, after being in jail, after having big mystical experiences. He went to his room and he stayed there for 40 years. And all the time this Indian independence movement is going on and Gandhi's walking, you know, in the dusty road and getting in jail for six years and terrible stuff happening. Aurobindo stayed in his room. He said, I'm doing more for the Indian independence movement by meditating than you are. Gandhi is such a silly little boy. Okay, in the meantime, Gandhi is saying, I'm here negotiating for the untouchables with the British, with Jinnah and the Pakistan, et cetera, et cetera, and you're sitting in your room. Thank you very much, okay. Now, this is a problem for us. If we had to choose, who would we choose? And maybe if we then chose one or the other, we would find neither one is enough. We're gonna need both. We're gonna need Gandhi, we're gonna need Aurobindo, and maybe we each need to be both. And I think if we're doing our meditation right, it will leak. And if we're doing our activity right, I think we will find those moments of sort of divine presence. There's a great Tibetan word, Jinlap, which means oceans, oceans of presence, which the Dalai Lama is, right? So I think you've got By asking the question shows you actually know what you're doing. And now you just need to get the right language to hold that you yourself and others uh, have a a truthful, dynamic relationship between the, the, I, I think of four yogas, but the way you put the question was meditation and action. Thomas Merton has a big book called Contemplation and Action. So does, you know, practically everything the Dalai Lama does is about contemplation and action. So he meditates four hours a day, but then he works the other, you know, 16 or 12 or whatever. So you've got, the, you've got it right. How to keep those together and how to keep the balance. It's it's you're onto it. You, you don't really need my answer. I'm just giving you language for your understanding. Quick, good going.
1: Robert, as I'd I'd like to close now with just giving you an opportunity, Uh, is there any reflection you have that uh, you'd like to add to what we've discussed today? Is there any sort of um, final piece that you'd like to mention that you don't think has gotten the attention we should have given it, given our purpose today?
2: My big question is, why did it take us 20 years to get together having this conversation? <laughs> I've been admiring you from San Francisco to well, for 20 years. <laughs> And we haven't had right. even a cappuccino together. No.
1: Well, let's consider this our first cappuccino. This is
2: not good, Michael. <laughs> I'm not impressed with either of us. Right. I mean, you claim to like me. I claim to like you. And right. it, you think we're, uh, right. you were in you know, Idaho right. and, and I'm in Alabama.
1: Where's the virtue ethic here? I <laughs> tell you.
2: So, somebody's asleep at the wheel. Right. Uh, well, I don't have any, any, I mean, I would not like that, oh, yeah, my parting words of wisdom or something. I already talked too much. I would like to have heard you on death, on dying, mm-hmm. uh, which I'm interested in and don't really know anything about. Um, I really would like to do that. And hear you more and more and more. Well, let's do you know, that another time. I I come running as you know, and I know where the turnoff is now. Yeah, exactly. You can't <laughs> you, you can't stop me. Right. Oh, it's no trouble. You get here. There's a there's a a little sign, and it and it has a, a, a line
1: this way, a line that way. Right. Okay. Well, Robert McDermott, thank you for being with us at the New School.
2: Michael, you know, I'm totally thrilled to be with you. On mm-hmm. any. Venue or circumstance, <laughs> and to be in this conversation was especially meaningful. And it was, I really feel it's a great privilege. Thank, Thank you. Thank you, Mutual. Thank you. Very much.
0: You've been listening to a conversation with Professor Robert McDermott and Michael Lerner. This is part two of a two-part conversation with Professor McDermott titled "Philosophy, Spirituality, and Community: A Professor's Journey." Thank you for joining us. The New School at Commonweal is directed by Michael Lerner. Our program coordinator is Kara Epstein. Our audio engineer is Ken Adams. And our theme music is by Port O'Monkeys. Please visit our website at tns.commonweal.org. That's tns.commonweal.org. Commonweal is spelled C-O-M-M-O-N-W-E-A-L. You can also find us on Facebook. Thank you for joining us.